Dr. Flippin. Santiago. Well, here's the, here's the thing. I'll make it real quick. Sorry. About that. Um, it was. I, I went to Santiago de Compostela. I made the pilgrimage a few years ago, and I would like to lead a pilgrimage uh, there this coming summer. And I know Jennifer is interested in it. And yes, you're interested. Yes, you mentioned before. Anyways, um, so afterwards, if you would be possibly interested in a commitment, please uh, give me your name. And we can start making some plans. So we have to go on our knees. There you go. You have to go on your knees. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. It doesn't really come off of there. It doesn't? No. I know this looks like a loaf of bread.
Okay. This is just a simple diagram form of representing the different kinds of beings in reality. God is absolutely unique as a being because in God, um, what he is is not a limited way of having being. God is not a possible being. Um, he is pure existence. He's pure actuality. There's no distinction in God between what he is and his act of existing. And the essence of something is just what a thing is. The emphasis is on what. What, what is something? What is... What is this? It's a dog. What is this? It's a cat. What is this? It's a table. Um, does it actually exist? Yes. Could it not exist? Yes. Um, what is God? Pure existence. Could God possibly not exist? No. Uh, but anything other than God can possibly not exist because what it is is not actuality, pure and simple. It's just up the possibility of having actuality, the possibility of being actual. So, other than God, what anything is, is usually a capacity, also called a potency, also called ability, to exist. Everything other than God is just a capacity to be actual in a certain way. And even an angel or human being separated from a body has an essence and an act of existing and what an angel, what a human being separated from a body is, is a, a capacity to exist without a form, I'm sorry, without matter. The ability, the possibility, the potentiality to exist immaterially. So an angel is an immaterial being just because involved in what the angel is, there's no matter. An angel is actually a kind of being. He's an intellectual being, he's got an intellect, got a will, and one angel is greater than another angel because he's got a greater intellect, um, more powerful will, um, but angels are completely set apart from the rest, the, those of us in, in the material universe because we, we are all material. That is, we have the potentiality to lose our substantial form and to become some other kind of thing. Mountain lion eats your dog. <coughs> no sh the, 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 the matter is the body does, is not destroyed. The substantial form which makes the dog a dog, it's gone. 
The mountain lion simply takes the matter that was there, that was determined to be dog by the substantial form of the dog, eats the dog, digests the dog. No matter is destroyed, it's just converted into another form. Okay? Any material being has this ability to lose its substantial form and the matter can take on another form. Angels aren't like that. Angels don't have this capacity to undergo a change and to become a different kind of being. There's no, there's no matter there that could lose that form and take on another form. Okay? But there's, there is this potency in the angel to its act of existing. Everything that exists, there's a potency, potentiality for its act of existing. Um, just because what it is is not existence or actuality, pure and simple, it's just a possible way of having a being. Everything other than God is what it is because it's a possible way of having more or less being. Once you see this, once you see this, nobody has to prove the existence of God to you. It's the most, almost the most obvious thing in the world. Once you see the distinction within things that exist in the world around us between what they are and the fact that they are, you see how that, 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 that these, this cannot be identified with what the thing is, then it's obvious that this thing exists. It doesn't exist of its nature. Its nature is just you know, a, the possibility of having being. And if it actually exists, something has, has got to be upholding it in being. Something has to be actualizing that possibility to have being. So once you see the kind of being that anything in the world around us is, it, it's almost, it, it almost follows like falling off a log that some being has to exist whose nature is being. Otherwise, nothing else would actually exist because everything else is just a, 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 a potency, a possibility, a capacity of having being. Okay? Um, I'm going to use this when I get to the Trinity, this and this, because this is going to turn out to be the sun, and this is going to turn out to be the Holy Spirit. Yes? Just uh, before you move on, an angel can have pure form without matter. Right. An angel okay. is, yeah, an angel is yeah, well, how, pure that's form. What, that was my question, is how would you describe the form of an angel? Since it, you know, because we think in terms of matter. We do. We do. Um, the easiest way, I guess, to think of an angel is to say to yourself, what's going to happen to me after I die? If I expect to go on living, what's going, what am I going to be like after I die? I'm going to be an immaterial being with an intellect, will, no body. No body. The body de decomposes, falls apart. Right. If I go on existing, I go on existing as an immaterial being. I'm still one kind of being rather than another. Form is just that which makes something to be actually one kind of being rather than another. So every angel is a distinct kind of being. 
So what would be the form of an angel? We're not talking about shape. Well, I know, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm just since you have the form of an angel. The form of an angel is to be an intellectual being. Okay, that's all. And one angel differs from another in kind because it's a greater or a lesser kind of purely intellectual being. And it also knows itself to be separate when you say separate from the other angels. Oh, sure. As a, in other words, there's a certain personhood involved. There's what? A certain personhood involved. Of course, every angel is a person. So every intellectual being is a person. Every angel is an intellectual being. Every angel is a person. Human being is an intellectual being. Human being is an embodied or incarnated intellectual being. Human being is a person. And with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in God, because these are um, these are um, what subsists, that is, exists as a substance and has rational natures. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit are persons, even though they're not separate beings, they're persons. We'll get to that. Yes? The person is only intellect or also will. Intellect the intellect and will. Yeah. If you've got an intellect, you automatically have a will. So every personal being is an intellectual being, and the will is understood to go along with the intellect. Okay? Anything else before we start? Okay, here we go. Listen, my, my consolation here is... Um, anything you can understand about God is better than not understanding it. What, whatever little bit you can pick up, um, and it's difficult to understand something about God, but every little bit we pick up is that much, that much more, and we tend to value it more than we do our understanding of the limited beings other than God. So it's like we're made to see God. We're made to know God face to face. So in this life, every little scrap of information we can pick up about God is all to the good. Let's go. At the end of last week's talk, I laid out a very ambitious goal and topic for this week. I indicated that we would consider how St. Thomas uses the distinction between essence, or what a thing is, and existence, actuality of a thing. One, to argue for the existence of God. Two, to know something very basic about the nature of God. Three, to say something intelligible about the union of the two natures in the person of Christ. Four, to make more intelligible to us what happens during the transubstantiation of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And five, in what way we can speak of three persons in one God without falling into a contradiction. <clears throat> Is this what it seems to be? 
an impossible amount to cover in one evening. <laughs> if I were aiming at a clear understanding of what St. Thomas is doing on each topic, the answer would clearly be yes. Spend a semester on every one of them. But I am not aiming at that. I am simply aiming to give you an idea how extensively St. Thomas used this distinction between essence and existence, that is what a thing is and its actuality, to solve philosophical and theological problems. So let's get started. One, proving God's existence. Before St. Thomas offered us his famous five ways of showing that God exists, he first asked whether it can be demonstrated that God exists. To, this, to answer this question, he distinguished two different ways of demonstrating or proving anything. One, by arguing from cause to effect, and two, by arguing from effect to cause. We might argue from cause to effect by saying that since the two parents of a child in the womb are human beings by nature, it follows that the unborn child must also be human. We're arguing from cause to effect. When, on the other hand, effects are better known to us than their cause, we must argue from effect to cause. For example, when we see smoke from a distance, we expect to see fire when we come closer. We can successfully argue from an effect to the existence of its cause when, one, we know that something is not self-explanatory and something about it needs an explanation. This tells us that the thing is an effect. You can't just point to something and say, now this is an effect. You, you first have to take something and say, now this is not self-explanatory. There's something about it that needs explaining. To the, ex to the extent that there's something about it that needs explaining, you can call it an effect. Because you're looking for a cause or an explanation of why it is that way. So we can successfully argue from an effect to the existence of its cause when one, we know that something is not self-explanatory and something about it needs an explanation, and two, we can discover the proper cause of what needs an explanation. And a proper cause is the one and only thing which can explain what needs to be explained. The one, a proper cause, is the one and only thing which can explain what needs to be explained. If you discover something that needs an explanation and you try to figure out um, why is this thing the way it is and you come up with 50 different possible causes, you don't know which one to point to. You have to be able to narrow the field down until you can say, uh, this and only this individual or this item or this kind of thing can explain what we're dealing with because this and only this thing is of such a nature that it can make sense of what I'm trying to explain. 
that's finding a proper cause. The thing that properly explains what you're trying to explain. Okay. We can successfully argue from things in the world about us to God if there is something about those things that needs explaining and if the kind of being we call God is the only possible cause of what needs explaining. Is there something about things in the world about us that needs explaining of which God is the only possible cause? It is of which God is the proper cause. St. Thomas thinks the answer is yes. The being or existence of things needs explaining and God is the only possible cause. That is what he's saying. God is the proper cause of the being or existence of things. Now, is such a line of reasoning immediately obvious or evident to us? Well, as I indicated before I started, in a certain respect, yes. If we happen to really focus on the being of things and we understand how things are related to the existence that they actually have, namely as potency to act, what things are are possibilities, possible ways of having existence. If the more clearly we see this, the more obvious it is to us that God, as pure existence, must exist. So in a certain respect, yes, if we happen to really focus on the being of things. But St. Thomas did not think that God's existence is evident to us for the most part. He thought we are prevented from seeing how the reason to God's existence from the existence of things, precisely because the world around us seems autonomous. That is, self-contained and independent. It's the notion of autonomous. Autonomous literally means a law unto yourself. And something is called autonomous if it's self-contained, doesn't need, doesn't need an explanation. It's, doesn't doesn't cry out for something other than itself to explain. Everything that happens in reality seems to be explainable using either natural causes or by appealing to human beings as rational and free agents. In short, God is not needed. This, this line of objection is one of only two objections that St. Thomas gives when he sets out to prove that God actually exists. He only gives two objections, two things that really slow people down and keep people from seeing that God exists. One is the problem of evil. The other is the seeming autonomy of things in the world around us. Things seem autonomous, independent. They don't need an explanation. When St. Thomas responds to this objection that the natural world, the things around us, seem autonomous, all he indicates is that 
the things in the natural world work for determinate or limited ends in such a way that they always presuppose a higher agent, a, a more basic kind of cause acting in and through them. Likewise, he argues, voluntary human actions presuppose a higher agent, precisely because human actions are changeable and can fail. What is meant here, what St. Thomas means here, he, he doesn't explain. He figures if you keep reading, you'll figure it out eventually. I mean, like he, he just says as much as he needs to say when he answers a given question and no more, and you just have to keep reading. What is determinate? What he means by determinate is some, simply, simply something that is, that is limited in its nature. That is, a determinate being is a being that is a limited capacity to have being. A determinate being is one that, by its nature, does not actually exist, but it can exist, or it's in potency to its act of existing. Also, what is changeable and can fail is also in potency to its act of existing. So what's going on in St. Thomas's mind when he argues this way is that whatever is in potency to its act of existing does not actually exist of its nature. And the reason why it actually exists must be sought for outside of itself in the same way that we would look for an explanation if we discovered a person suspended five feet off the ground. You go, okay. Uh, I, I know that I could be five feet off the ground, but there better be some explanation. I, I have the potency, I have the power, the possibility to be suspended five feet off the ground. But there's got to be a reason to actualize that potency, that possibility. St. Thomas says it's exactly, that's exactly the same thing as is the case with the natures of things. The natures of things are related to their act of existing, to the fact that they actually exist like a human being suspended five feet off the ground. It's possible, sure. And you see a person actually suspended off the ground, but you go looking for a reason for it. Thomas says in the same way, we should look for a reason anytime we see that something actually exists. There's got to be a reason for it because it does not exist of its nature. So, of his nature, it's possible for a person to be suspended five feet off the ground, but a cause that actualizes that possibility is clearly needed. So, why do people not see that a being which exists of its very nature, we're talking about God, is demanded to explain the existence of things? Why don't people see this? It is because the universe is autonomous in some way. And this leads us astray. The universe is autonomous with regard to the natures of things that make it up and the actions that go with those natures. Dogs produce dogs. Cats produce cats. Hot bodies cause other bodies to become hot, and so on and so forth. Because we only tend to focus on the natures of things, 
we assume that the universe is completely autonomous. Completely autonomous. That is, not only with respect to the natures of things and the actions that go with those natures, but we, we, we suppose that the universe is also autonomous in its actual existence. And here's where St. Thomas says we make a mistake. So, he might ask, is there a way in which the universe is not autonomous? Yes. Even though the things about us are autonomous, self-explanatory, with regard to their natures, and their ability to act in accordance with their natures. Nothing about us is autonomous with regard to its being. Because being, or the act of existing, is always other than, really distinct from the natures of the things that we know. So, when two dogs produce a third dog, they are properly the efficient causes of the nature of the new dog. But they are not the proper causes of the being of the new dog. They presuppose some other cause which is acting through them, which is upholding things in being, just as a person suspended in midair presupposes something holding him in midair. Because of the real distinction between essence and the act of existing, everything other than that, everything other than that being whose nature is being, namely existence, pure and simple, God, must be constantly upheld in being by God. Another quick example that Thomas often gives to try to get this point across because it's so hard for us to see this simple fact um, is, uh, he says, consider the light in the atmosphere. You look at the atmosphere during the day and it's, it's lit up. Nice, light, blue. Um, <clears throat> sun goes down, atmosphere is not lit up. The atmosphere can be lit up, but when the atmosphere is lit up, it's only because something other than the atmosphere is lighting it up, causing it to be lit up. Thomas says, we are related to our act of existing somewhat like the atmosphere is related to its being illuminated or lit up by the sun. It's like God is like the sun. Just as the sun illuminates the atmosphere, which can be lit up, but is not illuminated or lit up of its nature, so of our nature, we can actually exist, but as long as we actually exist, God must be actually acting on us, upholding us in being. Second point, proving God's nature. This is very short. Since things act in accord with their natures, that is, things do what they do because of what they are. Dogs produce cats. I'm sorry, dogs produce cats. They do not produce cats. The contradiction. Everybody's awake. Okay. 
since things act in accord with their natures, it follows that if we arrive at the existence of God as the proper cause of the being of things about us, then in acting as the proper cause of the being of things, God must be acting in accord with his nature. This means that to be or to exist is the nature of God. This means that God's nature is just pure actuality. God is not, in any sense, a potency or a possibility or a capacity of having being. God is being pure and simple, which is why he identified himself to Moses in precisely that way. And this means that only one such being is possible. Two beings whose nature is pure being or pure actuality are inconceivable. There's no way you could distinguish one from the other. Once you prove that God's exist and God is being by his nature, you've proven that only one God is possible. Third problem. Two natures in the one person of Christ. If being or existence is the very nature of God, then what happens when Christ, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, takes human nature to himself so that in Christ we have two natures in one person? Clearly, in some way we are saying that Christ is two and in some way, he is one. Before we give in to the urge to say that where we have one being, we must have one nature, or that where we have two natures, we must have two beings, let us quickly remind ourselves why we must say that Christ is one being or person having two natures. This is taken from... Revelation. Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins and to reopen the gates of paradise. If Christ was only divine in nature, he could not have suffered and died for us. And human and human nature would not be atoning for Adam's sin. There's no human nature in Christ. Christ is only divine in nature. He could not have suffered and died, being God. And then human nature would not be atoning for Adam's sin. If, on the other hand, Christ was only human in nature, then, certainly, he could have suffered and died, but it would not have atoned for our sins. The reason is that when Adam sinned, even though he was a finite being, Yet his fault, his sin, was infinite insofar as it offended an infinite being, namely God. Adam's a finite being, but he commits an infinite fault by sinning against an infinite being. Although Adam could commit a sin of infinite magnitude because of the infinity of the person offended, 
He could not repair the damage because the repair has to come wholly from the one making the repair. Hence, once Adam sinned against God, a being having an infinite nature had to repair the damage. Insofar as Christ had a human nature, he could offer to repair the damage as done by one of human nature. But only insofar as Christ had a divine nature could he actually effect the repair. Let's go back to our problem. This is only by way of indicating that if Christ did what we believe Christ did for us, namely, reopen the gates of paradise by suffering and dying on the cross, Christ must be one, one being, one person having two natures. He had to be human to die. He had to be divine in order to repair the infinite damage done to a divine or infinite being. But, how is it possible to have one substantial being who has two substantial natures? This is what we believe Christ to be. It seems that because a nature or in essence, makes its being to be the kind of being it is, if Christ has two natures and each nature is real or exists, then he must be two beings or two persons. <coughs> but if Christ is two beings or two persons, then he cannot break out our redemption. Hence, there must be a way for Christ to be one being, having two natures. Thomas, St. Thomas uses his distinction between essence and existence to solve this problem. That he does so seems certain, but when he's doing it, he doesn't tell us that this is what he's doing. So, Remember that the divine nature is pure, unlimited existence. This is God's nature. It's pure actuality. Existence, pure and simple, no limitations. Human nature, on the other hand, is a limited way of having being. It's one kind of limited being rather than another. So human nature, as opposed to divine nature, is a limited capacity to have existence or being. This is only to say that human beings do not exist of their natures. Rather, they have a certain capacity to exist. When they exist, something must be actualizing that capacity. Now, when God creates each one of us, he is actualizing our capacity to exist. When God creates each one of us, he gives each one of us our own act of existing. Hence, each of us is a separate being and a separate substance. 
When I die, you do not die. When I sin, you do not sin. But what happened when God became man? What happened is that a, a new human nature began to exist that had not existed before. Fine. But did that new human nature, that is the human nature of Christ, have its own separate, specifically human act of existing, which is what happens when each one of us begins to exist? No. What happened was that the human nature of Christ began to exist not by its own separate and distinct act of existing, but by the very act of existing of God. Or rather, by the very act of existing that is God. So Christ is a divine being or a divine person with a human nature sharing in his being. Christ's human nature is like yours or mine. But the being by which Christ's human nature actually exists is the unlimited being of God whereby the being by which your human nature and mine exists is a limited act of existing that is nicely proportioned to our limited nature. Christ's act of existing is unlimited while his human nature is limited. This is why St. Thomas can compare the limited human nature of Christ to the unlimited being of Christ somewhat to the way in which a hand exists in a human being as a whole. The hand, he points out, is more restricted, more limited than the human being whose hand it is. It's just a part of a whole. And yet that hand exists as a part of that whole human being and so exists with the being of the whole person. A hand exists. And it's a human hand because it's, it's a part of a whole being and exists by the being of the whole person. In the same way, Thomas says, in the same way Christ's human nature can be conceived as if it were a part existing within the immensity of the divine being. It exists with the being of the whole divine nature and yet is lost within it as if it were a teacup filled with the water of the ocean and yet lost at the same time within the immensity of the ocean. Next problem. Solve that. <laughs> you say so. This is just, it's just a taste of each one of these problems. Transubstantiation.
In the sacrament of the Eucharist, after the consecration of the bread, the substance of the bread is gone and is changed into the body of Christ while the accidents of the bread remain. While there are a number of problems that can be raised about this, let us focus only on one in order to make the point, namely the way in which Thomas keeps using this distinction between essence and existence to try to give us some limited grasp of these mysteries. Have the accidents of the bread, for example, the size, shape, color of the host, which we continue to see after the priest consecrates the bread, that is, after transubstantiation, have the accidents of bread become accidents of Christ, who takes the place of the substance of the bread? Or do the accidents of the bread, of 